Folks, do have your Bibles open at Genesis chapter 14 as we work through this together. Um, I'm sure you've all heard of having 15 minutes of fame. You've heard of that, right? Maybe some of you have even had those 15 minutes for yourselves. I can remember very well whenever I was in primary school. uh, I can't remember the reason, but the BBC came to school and I, I was in the background of one of the shots on the news that night and I felt like a like a minor celebrity whenever my granny phoned the house and said was that Jamie on the news couldn't believe it think about how you would feel if you know you're watching Barabbas do the weather and there just outside Newry is the word King's Mills and maybe the sun's shining as it is now or maybe it's raining like it was a few moments ago But we experience a a, a little rush, don't we? It's a thrill. Even the name of where we live on the the, the TV. To think that the world cares about us. Just for a moment to to lose that feeling of insignificance and instead experience what, what all of the celebrities and politicians and royals, they have it all the time, don't they? Just that moment to feel that we as normal people are are caught up into their world. Strangely intoxicating. And at first glance, when we read Genesis 14, that's what seems like is going on here. We we have a list at the start of the chapter of, of all the great kings in the area at the time. Moses gives us the headline. And it's, it's a rundown of, of the heads of state and government. That's what it's like. It, it would be as if, as if the, the G7 countries were, were listed with all of their heads of state and government. Moses is giving us the headline. He, he's saying this is what happened on the front pages. In our day, we might read something like, you know, Boris Johnson and Joe Biden held talks with Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. We, we, we might read something like that as equivalent to the start of Genesis 14. And so it's not just there in our Bibles to give ministers a hard time having something to read at the front of church. All those names are there to tell us what's happening on the world stage at that time. That was big news. But then if you look down to verse 12, there we have Abram. And he appears alongside those big names. And for a moment, well, we could be confused, couldn't we? We could think, here he is. Here's Abram's 15 minutes of fame. Here Abram is appearing aside all, all the celebrities of the day. He's making it on the world scene. He's, he's battling against the superpowers of the time. And he's making alliances with some of the other superpowers. But the truth is, Abram's name is not recorded alongside the world leaders. The world leaders' names are recorded alongside Abram. There are names here like Kerdalamer that we might never have heard of if it wasn't for the fact that the, the Bible records his name. He was a big deal in his time. He was a, he was a, a king and a leader. But we only know of him because his story interact with the story of the Bible. With the story of Abram and what God is doing in the world. It's not the other way around. 
The reason for that is, while Kerdelammer was really important at that time and in that place, well, he's just a, a side player. He's a, he's a bit part in the story of God's people. And so he's not the focus. He's not the focus of what God is doing in the world. Abram is the central focus of the story. Because it's through Abram that God has chosen to reveal himself and to, to bless the nations. And so with that in mind, I, I have three points for us to consider in this passage today. They relate back to last week. Remember last week we said that, that we aren't at home in this world. We're living as pilgrims. We're, we're passing through on our way to a better country. Well, here's our three points. God's people are central to God's plans and purposes in the world. God's people are protected by God from the world. And God's people should reject the world for the sake of Christ. So let's look firstly at God's people being central to God's plans and purposes. And that's sort of what we've already mentioned, isn't it? Here we have world history, the, the, the kings and rulers of the world, and they interact with God's people. It's not the, the kings and the military officials who are the centre of the story. It's the people of God. It's Abram and his nephew Lot. The battle of kings in the Valley of Siddim is not insignificant. It's not unimportant. But the fact that we don't know many of the names in this story, we, we don't really know who they are, it, it might make it seem insignificant to us. But these are big-time rulers and armies. What we have is a, is a rebellion of some lesser kingdoms who band together and try and overthrow the king who's been ruling over them for 12 years. They rebel against him in the 13th year. And then in the 14th year, Kerdelammer comes for revenge. And there's an almighty battle because each side has allies and it ends up as four kings against five. But I don't just want you to see that there's a war happening. What I want you to see is that the people of God are entangled in this war. Because on one side is the king of Sodom. And that's where Lot is living. Lot's Abram's nephew, remember? He, remember last week he, he moved down towards Sodom. Well, now we find that he's living in Sodom. And so when the Bible includes Sodom, it includes Lot. And that's where the interest is for us. You see, some parts of the Bible record history. And that's what we read here in Genesis. This is history, which happened in the world. But it's not mere human history. It's a record of the history of God's people. That's what the Bible is. It's the history of the church. And therefore the history of God's dealings with his people through the years. And so this story is not included in the Bible so that we can look back at some portion of ancient Near Middle Eastern history. No, it's included in the Bible to show us that while all the kings of the known world might be fighting for territory and land and power as they, as they chase one another across valleys and into pits of tar, God's focus is on little old Abraham and his nephew Lot. God's focus is on his people. 
So the church of Christ is central to what God is doing in the world. Perhaps a way to think about it would be like this. Do you remember the start of the TV show Dad's Army? Maybe I'm dating myself here. The younger people wonder what I'm talking about. Remember Dad's Army? And, and the, at the start of the TV show, there was an overview picture of arrows going back and forward across the map. But the actual interest in the story was not that view from 20,000 feet, was it? The interest is when we zoom in and we see that the impact of those advancing and retreating armies in the lives of real people. Or in the case of Dad's army, they were made up people. Again, you would likely have much more interest in a member of your family who served their country in a war than in the massive geopolitical movements of entire forces. That's what we have here. God is interested in his people and what they are doing. Of course God cares about the big things. He cares about the kings and the rulers. He cares about the movement of troops and such like. God cares about what's going on in Westminster and in the White House. But this passage is showing us, by the very fact that it's here in our Bibles, it's showing us that God's focus is on his people. And I think we need to be reminded of that. It can be all too easy to think that we peel into insignificance against the great calamities and difficulties of this world. But I want you to know today that God cares for his church. His focus is on you. Since the old hymn says, his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. So friends, I want to encourage you today, while you might feel small and insignificant, when you look at the affairs of this world, when you see the headlines, you might wonder, where do I fit in this time in history? I want to encourage you, as interested as God is in the Queen of England and the President of Ireland, his focus is on his people. And therefore, you are central to his plans and purposes in this world. We, as the church, are the way God is carrying out his plans and purposes in this world. So, of course, the affairs of China and of Russia matter to God. But God's focus is on the eight-year-old who's trying to learn her catechism. God's focus is on the grandmother who kneels by her bed to pray for each grandchild's salvation. God's focus is on the farmer filling in his tax return with honesty and integrity. His focus is on the mother who's changing yet another nappy and singing hymns over her babies. His focus is on the family of five who sit down after a very long day to read the Bible and pray together. God's focus is on the people who set aside one day in seven to gather together and give him worship. God's eye is on you today. You're not insignificant. He cares about who you are and what you are doing. We see that really clearly in our second point. God's people are protected by God from the world. 
God's people are protected by God from the world. And so in the midst of war, God's people are pulled into this story. Lot is living in Sodom, and so he's carried off with, with all of his goods and provisions by Kerder Lammer and his allies. Somebody managed to escape and made his way to tell Abram what has happened to his nephew. <coughs> Excuse me. So Abram gathers together his fighting men, 318 of them, and they head off in pursuit. Now, for a wandering pilgrim, for a man who left his father's house and land, Abram is not doing too bad. He has trained 318 men in his household as fighters. 318 of them, that's not to be sniffed at. But come on, there's only 318 of them. Surely they're no match for the great allied forces of Kerdalamer, Tidal, Amraphel and Arioch. 318 men against four large armies. Well, what happened? Abram divided his men. He used a nighttime attack for surprise and he managed to recover all the goods and provisions that have been taken, along with his nephew Lot, as well as the women and the people. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it often the case that throughout the Bible, God protects his people from the world and he uses weak things to shame the strong? God has a way of demonstrating his power by allowing his people to look weak to the world so that when they are protected and saved, it's God who gets the glory. That's what happened here with Abram's rescue of Lot. You'll remember Gideon and his army. Think about little David, the smallest in the family. Or poor, weak Joseph, beaten and thrown into a pit. Ultimately, wasn't it through the weakness of the cross that God saves his children? The cross is weakness to the world. What hero would go to his death? Isn't it weakness to, to die at the hands of your enemies? But it's through the weakness of the cross that God shames the strength of this world. Bringing salvation to all who trust in him. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, we are all too easily tempted to give up. To give up trusting in God and to trust in our own methods, our own techniques to save ourselves. We can believe that happiness and satisfaction is going to be found by turning to the things of the world. And so we run around. We run around, don't we? And we exhaust ourselves trying to make ourselves happy. Trying to keep everybody else happy. It's so tiring. Is anybody else tired? Are you tired of seeking after the things of this world? During the, the first lockdown, didn't we think the pandemic would reset us? It would remind us what's really important. But 18 months later, we're back to all the busyness we were into before. It's tiring. And it won't bring happiness. And it won't bring satisfaction. We do all these things to try and give our lives value and meaning. Basically, we're trying to save ourselves. 
So if you are tired today, if you are weary, would you come to Jesus? He will give you rest. Look at the story of Abram and Lot. Humanly speaking, they didn't stand a chance. But God was for them. And so who could be against them? You see, God protects his people from the world. And so we don't need to try and justify our own existence. We don't need to create our own value and meaning. You have value and meaning. You have value and meaning because you're one of God's people. And it's his mission to fill your life with meaning through a relationship with Jesus. Would you come to Jesus? That looks weak in the eyes of the world. But it's not weak. It conquers the world. And it gives us all the meaning and value and joy we could ever hope for. So let me encourage you again today that the things we've already described as the things God has his eye on, sitting down to read your Bible and pray, those don't look remarkable to the world. Getting your face on TV for 15 minutes, making a fuss, voting the Nolan show, that, that's what the world cares about. But for the people of God, we know that God is working for our protection for our salvation and for our joy. So we don't need the world to think we're strong. It's not we who save ourselves. It's God who saves and protects us. Through Jesus. Please don't be tempted to trust in the ways of this world. Stand against the world. Give your allegiance to God. And to his kingdom. And that brings us to our final point. God's people should reject the world for the sake of Christ. We don't have much time left today, so we're not, I didn't plan to anyway, we're not going to get into the whole Melchizedek thing. There is lots of lore and lots of legend about Melchizedek that's not true and isn't from the Bible. So be careful when you read about Melchizedek. But the Bible does teach us about Melchizedek. It, it teaches us more about him than just these verses in Genesis 14. And he is a very important character. But let's deal just with what we have in front of us. He's a mysterious guy. He's not one of the kings which we've previously mentioned. But at the end of our passage, verse 18, we're told that he is a king, the king of Salem. And we're also told he is a priest, priest of God Most High. Salem is most likely an ancient name for the city that we know as Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And this little passage here in Genesis 14 is interesting because it clearly means that there are people who worship God outside of Abram and his family. So although Abram and his family are the focus of the Bible, there are others. Other people who worship the one true and living God. Melchizedek is an example of this. I think Job would be another example who is most likely from the same time period as Abraham. But let's look at the interaction between Abraham and Melchizedek. And then I think it's going to be helpful for us to compare that 
to Abraham's interaction with the king of Sodom. So what happens here with Abraham and Melchizedek? What they share is probably best described from our standpoint as a communion meal. Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. And so understanding this and connecting connecting it to the fact that he's described as a priest. And he blesses Abraham in praise of God. Well that would most likely mean this this is a worship service. Abraham and Melchizedek share in worship. Including a, a fellowship or communion meal. Well then, Abram gives Melchizedek a, a tithe of all he has. Okay, well what about his interaction with the king of Sodom? It's different, isn't it? I think it's fair to say that in this passage, Salem is given to represent God's kingdom, the things of God. While Sodom represents the things of this world. And Sodom makes a demand of Abram. But Abram doesn't bow to the demand. Instead of holding anything back for himself, Abram allows Sodom to take all the spoils of war. What are we to make of this? I think it's about allegiance. Abram shows fellowship and allegiance to Salem by paying a tithe and sharing in worship. But Sodom, well, he rejects that completely. He forms no bond and creates no allegiance. Again, it seems foolish, doesn't it, to human eyes? Abram could become even more rich. The the king of Sodom is offering to let him keep all the goods, but Abram refused. Abram is rejecting the wealth and prosperity of this world. Instead, he's choosing to align himself with the things of God. And in doing so, he gives up on worldly wealth and possessions. He even gives away a tithe to the king of Salem. I'm sure there's immediate application for all of us here because... Who among us, if we were in Abram's shoes or sandals, who wouldn't take the stuff for ourselves? Who among us struggles, even today, to give over a tithe to the work of God? Now, in case you misunderstand, I don't actually think that giving a tithe 10% is a must for the Christian. But I do think the Bible provides it as a helpful guide. It's a guideline. It would be amazing if you were able to give more than a tithe. Either into the free will offering, property account, the United Appeal envelopes. And of course, I know that people give to other mission organisations, to agencies, to individuals. But perhaps there is a challenge to us here. If we believe the first two points of the sermon, that, that God's people are central to God's plans, and that God's people are protected by God, Well then shouldn't we align ourselves with Salem, with God and his kingdom? Be willing to reject the things of this world for the sake of Christ? Shouldn't we be willing to tithe our income to the church, to Jesus? Who who didn't tithe his own blood but, but poured his blood out freely for our salvation? Maybe that's a challenge to you that you have to pray about. Friends, the the Christian life is all about living for Jesus. It's about living for his kingdom. It's about straining towards our heavenly home, rejecting the world, and knowing what this passage teaches us about the people of God, about you and me. It teaches that you are central to God's plans and purposes in the world. God's eye is on you. It teaches that 
You are protected by God from the world. Through the weakness of the cross, God offers you everlasting significance and value. And so you should reject the world for the sake of Christ, being willing to count it all loss, that you may know the fullness of God in Jesus. Friends, let me pray for us. We'll bow together as we pray.